Turn to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. And the book of Hebrews contains a serious warning for all those who profess faith in Christ and yet don't live for Christ. They say they're believers, but they're not living like they are believers. It says in Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning willfully, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. <clears throat> Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, in other words, shown disdain or despised the law of Moses, didn't bother to keep it, <clears throat> dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God as regarded the un as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Terrifying thing. As, I, as we study the life of Saul, I think of verses like this. You know, Saul started out with all the blessings of God. He had everything. But he chose to reject all that in favor of a self-centered life, a life based on himself and what he wanted. He was a man who had received the knowledge of the truth. Had he not, in many ways? And yet he was sinning willfully. He went on, we could say, sinning willfully, continued that way. He lived a life of disobedience to the Lord. That's what marked him. Now, that in itself is a punishment to live that way. It's a punishment from God. A person that rejects the blessings of God, turns his back upon all that God has given him, he forfeits so many things. Think about this. He forfeits joy, doesn't he? He forfeits peace. Uh, his life revolves around himself. As Saul did, he engages in practices that are illogical, irrational, don't make any sense at all. Uh, he's one who is self-destructive. And he's destructive of others as well. And that's the way Saul lived. But the fact of the matter is, Saul's day of reckoning would come. And guess what? Everybody, God holds everybody accountable. All of us will have a day of reckoning. We'll face the Lord. Tonight, though, we're going to look, we're going to view the last-ditch efforts of a, of a desperate man trying to get in touch with God, the God whom he has rejected. We're going to start off, first of all, with the silence of God in verses 3 and three through 6 of chapter 28. The silence of God. Look at verse 3 of chapter 28. It says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Samuel had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. You know, Saul has been in the habit of disobeying the Lord for years now. That's just been the way he's lived. His behavior, as I said, has been certainly self-destructive, but also he sought to harm others. He sought to harm David, didn't he? David and his men. He did all he could to pressure David and his men. To He tried to kill them, and finally he basically ran them out of the country. Now, thats I don't believe David should have left the country, but Saul uh, had his part in that. He, he tried his best to get him out of the country, and, that, and he succeeded. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. I mean, he considered, he, he realized, or at least he rationalized to himself, I've got to get out of here and go to the land of the Philistines of all places. 
Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over. He went to the land of the Philistines. In verse 3, he lived with Achish at Gath, that's in Philistia. He and his men, each with his household, even David and his wives. Verse 4, now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Saul succeeded in his mission of trying to get rid of David and getting him out of the country. He succeeded in this. And by the time you get to chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, David is now being enlisted, since he lives in Philistia, he's been enlisted in the army, army of the Philistines, and he's going to fight against the, he's told he's going to fight against Israelites. Now, put that on hold for this week. We'll have to wait till next week or next time we get to the Lord has us get together for this and to see what happens with David. But for now, the scene changes from David in the land of the Philistines to Saul in the land of Israel. And there's all, first of all, flashback in verse 3. Uh, we're reminded that the great prophet of Israel, Samuel, is dead. Now, there's a reason that's mentioned there, but it was first of all mentioned in chapter 25, verse 1, by the way, but we're flashing back and thinking about it again. By the way, Samuel is dead, it says. But for right now, Saul has a serious issue on his hands he's got to deal with. What is that? The Philistines are invading. Verse 4 it says that they went to a place called Shunem to set up camp, which, by the way, tells us that they're well into Israelite territory. To give you an idea of how far they're into Israelite territory, the land of the Philistines, we'll take Gath as a starting point in Philistia. From Gath, you have to go about 75 miles north, up in the northern part of Israel near the Sea of Galilee, to get to the place called Shunem. They had marched, at least from Gath, wherever they'd marched from, but from Gath they had had to march 75 miles into northern territory of Israel. Now that's way, that's deep into the territory of Israel. So that they had crossed over all this land and gone in there. Here's Israel living there, and yet they forced their way in and, and marched up to the northern part of Israel, probably trying to cut Saul off in the southern part of it. So Saul, realizing this, goes up to Gilboa, about 10 miles south of Shunem, and sets up camp. He knows he's going to have to fight against these guys. And he can observe the Philistine troops from Shunem. He can see them well from the location he's at. And when he sees these guys, I mean, verse 5 says this, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Imagine seeing thousands of soldiers from another country in Tampa. And they're here to march upon us. I mean, you'd tremble, you'd be afraid, and that's what Saul was. He's basically frightened out of his wits. And chapter 29 indicates this is a massive army that has come together to fight. And so Saul has good reason to tremble, doesn't he? And he is desperate to find a solution to the problem. So what does a desperate man do in the midst of desperate circumstances? He go, tries to get in contact with God. He tries to contact God. Now, some, for some people, it takes very difficult circumstances before they actually want to contact God and seek the Lord. You remember 9-11 and what happened there in the aftermath? All of a sudden, people started praying in our country. Remember that? The news reports had churches that uh, it, it showed people gathering churches together and they were praying and seeking the Lord. And all. Why? Because of the tragedy that had happened. And all this was taking place. And, and you know, were we on the verge of another great spiritual awakening in the country at that time? Maybe it looked that way. But after a few weeks... You know, things seemed to return to normal. And people didn't feel the need to pray so much. They didn't feel the need to seek God and inquire of God so much after a while. And so they quit coming together to pray. Now, what does it take for you and I to seek the Lord? Will it take a national crisis to take place again before we come to seek the Lord? Will it take some trial in your life, some difficulty, some 
something that comes to you that is 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 uh, drastic, and then you begin to seek the Lord? Is that what it, what it will take? You know, as believers, that shouldn't be that way. We should be seeking the Lord every day, regardless, fair weather or foul, uh, in season and out of season, in good times and bad. It doesn't matter. We should be seeking the Lord anyway. The circumstances of life should not start us on a course of prayer. That should be the course of our life on a daily basis. But seeking the Lord was not, underscore that, not a priority for Saul. That's not what Saul did. As a king, we know it should have been, right? As a king of Israel, but it was not. By the way, the last time the scriptures record Saul inquiring of God, I believe, is chapter 14. Now we're in chapter 28. The last time it says he actually inquired of God those words is chapter 14, verse 37. It says there Saul inquired of God. But that was not his usual practice. <clears throat> not what he did. And now the Philistines are coming into the northern part of Israel and Saul is sick to his stomach. And, it, and so guess what? It's time to approach the Lord again. He's got to go to the Lord again. Only it says here in verse 6, that verse is really troubling. It says the Lord did not answer him. Now sometimes we wonder, why is it God is not answering my prayer? You ever, heard, you ever thought that to yourself? You prayed and you've asked God for something or you've sought the Lord in a certain matter and God doesn't answer your prayer and you, don't want, and you wonder why. Could it be that we've sinned against God and not confessed that sin? Psalm 66, 18, uh, the psalmist said, If I have regarded wickedness in my heart, the Lord, what? He will not hear, right? He will not hear. That's what it says. And Saul's life was marked in general by disobedience to the Lord. The course of his life was the direction of his life, as Mike always says, was marked by disobedience to the Lord. Now, let, let me quickly retrace some of those disasters that were the life of Saul. Chapter 13. The Philistines are at it again. Saul panics when he sees the army coming in. And Samuel said, wait for me to get there, and I'm going to offer an offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. And Saul doesn't wait. He's impatient. He's, he's got it. And so he forces himself, it says, and he offers an offering himself. And that was, a, that was not what he should have done. And chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel, when he gets there, says to Saul, you have acted foolishly. He says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. How many times has that said of Saul? You have not kept, kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There's the first instance. And then in chapter 14 it says Saul inquires of God. Remember he's in that another battle and he uh, gives the command for the people not to eat anything and Jonathan finds some honey on the ground. Jonathan didn't hear his instructions anyway and he eats of the honey and Saul's ready to kill his own son. It's just stupid. And so he's, you know, it says Saul inquired of the Lord in that chapter and it says the Lord did not he answer him on that day, by the way, in chapter 14. The Lord did not answer him on that day. That the Lord had already started opposing Saul early on. And then in chapter 15, you all know what happened there, the greatest, uh, maybe this greatest single act of disobedience by Saul. The Lord said, exterminate the Amalekites, kill all their animals, their king, everybody. And Saul saved the king alive and the best of the animals, and he didn't do what God said. Another act of disobedience. Chapter 16, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul, it says. Chapter seven, in chapter 18, and beginning in chapter 18, and on into even up to now, David or Saul begins his mission of trying to kill David. Disobedience. He's trying to kill the next king of Israel, the God who, the guy who God has anointed to be king of Israel in the future. 
That's not, that's not enough, though, for him. Chapter 22, he tries to wipe out the entire priesthood of Israel. One guy escapes by the name of Abiathar. This bloody massacre of the priesthood. So by the time the chap, you get to chapter 28, is it any wonder why the Lord will not answer Saul? Is it, is it any surprise to any of us? The direction of his life has been one of disobeying the Lord. God has rejected Saul. Samuel has rejected Saul. He won't even deal with him. While he was alive, he didn't want to deal with him. And Saul can't say, but he's dead now. Saul can't turn to Samuel for any help at all anyway. He can't do that. So Saul goes to the Lord, but the Lord will not respond to him. So he's in a real mess right here. Now, there are three ways the Lord could have responded to Saul. Number one, it says in verse 6, he could have answered him. The Lord did not answer him either by dreams. Could have answered him through a dream. Remember, he, uh, the Lord gave Pharaoh dreams to, to speak of the coming famine in Egypt, and Joseph interpreted those dreams. And the Lord gave, will in the future give Solomon a dream and say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. The Lord even will give Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, as was Pharaoh, a dream that is interpreted. But the Lord will not give Saul a dream. He won't do it. could have answered by dreams, but he didn't do it. He could have answered him by Urim, it says. Now, the priest of, of, Israel, of Israel wore a garment called an ephod. And over his chest, and on that ephod was something called the Urim and the Thummim. And it was a way to, to determine the will of God. Now... How it's unclear as to how people determine the will of God that way, and it's not for us to, to need to know right now. That's just, it's just the fact remains that's how they determine the will of God, one way. And so Saul maybe would have liked to have gone that route. However, there's only one problem. <laughs> he tried to exterminate the priesthood. Now, Abiathar, the one guy, the one priest had, in chapter 22 had escaped, if you recall, and where did he go? He went to David. And what did he bring with him? The ephod. So Saul doesn't have an ephod. He doesn't have a priest. Why would the priesthood be supporting him now anyway? He tried to kill them all. There's not many of them left anyway, probably. So Saul couldn't utilize that method. And then he could have, God could have answered Saul by the prophet, says this in verse 6, but he didn't do it. However, the prophet whom Saul dealt with was dead. And none of the other prophets are mentioned as speaking to him. And by the way, it speaks of Samuel as being over, the, over prophets in some of the chapters. And I don't think those guys following Samuel would have lended any support to Saul as well either. So it's a very, it, he has nowhere to turn. I mean, he's tried every avenue of communicating with the Lord. It's just a sad predicament to be in. You know, it's one thing for you and I, for people not to listen to us. Or sometimes people say, well, I'm not on speaking terms with that guy anymore. That's one thing, but it's, you know, we can, and, and you may even live years like, well, it's not right. But it's another thing for the Lord not to listen to you or to answer your prayers. That's a real serious problem he's got there. Now, had, had, we, had the biblical counselors been there at this time to talk to Saul, the, the advice should have been and would have been, look, you need to search your heart and you need to genuinely repent of your sins and seek the Lord, right? That would have been great advice because the Bible says the Lord will not despise a truly contrite and broken heart. That's what it says. And that's true, he won't. However, I just don't believe that Saul ever had a truly contrite and broken heart. I don't ever see that in anything in the chapters we looked at. And I don't think he's going to start now either, by the way. And so he's deliberate in his disobedience to the Lord. He's been, been this way for years. So why would we think the Lord would come to his aid now? And so it says the Lord did not answer him. You know, there's people in the world who, who turn their back on God and they despise Christ and they want nothing to do with Christ. And, and then, but when they get in a mess, what do they do? They come to God and ask for his help, right? 
And then he doesn't answer him. He doesn't answer them. And then they get mad at God, and they say, well, he doesn't exist. He didn't answer me. He doesn't exist. And then they look elsewhere for help. Saul repeatedly, repeatedly disobeyed God. This was the pattern of his life. So when he finally tries to communicate with the Lord in this crisis situation in chapter 28, God is silent. He's silent. And we cannot expect the Lord to give us guidance if we refuse to repent, if we refuse to own up to our sin. Secondly, notice the desperation of Saul. The desperation of Saul. Look at verse 7. It says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying his snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Saul's not ready to give up yet. He's tried various means and methods, but he's not going to give up yet. If the Lord won't help him, he'll figure out another way. He's going to get in touch with the supernatural somehow. And so he comes up with a plan. He says, I got an idea. He tells his servants, look, go find a woman who is a medium. And why would he do that? Because it says he wanted to inquire of her. He inquired of the Lord, but he didn't answer. So he figures maybe the medium will. Maybe I can get someone with her. And so she's called a medium here, by the way, traditionally known, as Mike said, as the witch of Endor. That's how we know her. Called a medium here. But what's ironic about this verse is that in, in verse 3 it says, Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. He had removed them from the land, it says. Now, a medium or a spiritist is a, is a person who contacts, tries to contact the spirit of a dead person or call up a dead person. That's what they do. Tries to contact the dead in some, in some way, but that Saul had outlawed them from the land. And so, uh, by the way, for him to have done that probably shows how widespread the problem was in Israel, for him to have done that. And, and, and I, by the way, I don't think it's Saul's idea that he did this. I don't see Saul coming up with this idea, hey, why don't I get rid of all the mediums? That would be a great help to Israel. I think that was Samuel's idea. That sounds like something Samuel. I think Samuel influenced that decision. But however you slice it, Saul put him out of the, out of the land. Uh, score one for Saul, right? Or do we? Th- this passage here is not talking about the fact that Saul, you know, it's great that Saul did this thing. But that's not what the passage is saying here. It's not saying that Saul was some kind of a righteous man showing he did this. It's showing that Saul didn't even live up to his own standards. He had put the mediums out of the land, yes, but he's ready to participate in going to a medium now. He's ready to seek a medium. And so you have a desperate man here. Why is, what's wrong with going to a medium or spirits? Don't people today go to psychics? Well, the fact is that those, those people are under the condemnation of God. The practice was forbidden by the law of Moses. Again and again it says that. By the way, according to Deuteronomy 17, the king was supposed to write himself a copy of the law and read a portion of it every day. Supposed to read the word of God every day. And it says there in Deuteronomy 17, if he did so, he would learn the fear of the Lord. He'd learn to fear the Lord. That was the idea. However, do you see the fear of the Lord in the life of Saul? I don't see it at all. And so I don't get the impression he was an avid Bible reader. Do you? What does the law of Moses say concerning mediums and spiritists? Well, listen to this. Luke, uh, Leviticus 19.31 says this. It says, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Don't turn to them for guidance. 
Don't look to them for inquiry of any kind. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He says, don't turn to them. Don't seek them out. Plain enough. Leviticus 20, verse 6. As for the person who turns to mediums and the spiritists to play the harlot after them, I, God says, will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Leviticus 20, verse 27. Now, a man or a woman who is a medium, it's funny that Saul said, look for a woman who's a medium. He's thinking about a man. But now, a man or a woman who's a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. And what kind of a death are we talking about here? It says, they shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness shall be, shall be upon them. Bloody death for being a medium. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12, it says this, There shall not be found among you one who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or who uses divination, or who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens. It's going into all kinds of details here. Or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. In other words, the people that lived in the land of Canaan before the Israel took over, were these kind of people. They had spiritists and mediums and they practiced witchcraft in the land. Boy, I tell you what, if you go through all the list of evil that was done in the land of Canaan before Israel got there, not to mention what happened when Israel got there, but before they got there, there was all kinds of witchcraft being practiced, left and right on every hand, not to mention all kinds of evil, evil of all kinds. And so God says these things are detestable. They are detestable. How do you think the Lord feels about the occult? He hates it with a passion. Absolutely hates it. That's why for the believer, by the way, the believer should never dabble in anything of this sort at all. No Ouija boards. We should not be reading horoscopes or going to or having tarot cards read to us or going to fortune tellers or or consulting psychics or, or being involved in the astrology of any ways or of any way at all. That's just should not be happening. Do you know there are many presidents of America who have consulted a psychic, by the way? Many. By the way, not only presidents, but others have famous people have consulted psych. You'd be surprised. Let me just give you a list of some presidents who have consulted a psychic. Garfield, Roosevelt, Truman, Harding, Johnson, Kennedy, Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, and the list goes on. I mean, it's considered an acceptable, yeah, the leadership of our country has oftentimes consulted psychics. It's considered acceptable to do. Acceptable practices, yeah, that's what they got to do. That's what they got to do, right, to get some answers for the country. But it's considered detestable to the Lord, right? That's what the scriptures say. But Saul is desperate, and he typically acts out of desperation. That's what he does. Now, it's interesting to me when he says to his servants, I need to find a medium. They immediately know where one is. Oh, yeah, there's, there's one over in Indoor. Everybody knows that. Wait a minute. I thought he ran them all out of the land. But apparently, this one wasn't run out of the land. Was somebody using a medium, maybe in Saul's court or something? I don't know. It's just very strange to me. There's nobody to run her out of the country. She's there. By the way, the, perp, the it doesn't say to run him out of the country. It actually says to stone him with stones. But Saul had him removed from the land, but I'm not going to go into that. So Saul decides to go to this witch of Endor, as we call her. He didn't have to travel very far because he's camped up in the northern part of Israel now. He's only got about four miles to go to Shunem. But the problem is Philistines are located in Shunem at their camp. Tons of them. And they're scary-looking guys. And if you recall, 
Some of those guys are, might, be, might even be giants. Saul would actually risk his life making this trip to go see the medium at Endor. He, he risked his life, and, but he's willing to risk his life if that's what it takes to see the medium. He's willing to do it. So he takes off his royal garments and he disguises himself, puts on regular clothes. I'm a regular Joe. <laughs> and he goes at nighttime, of course, so he won't be detected. And he goes to this medium. And the woman doesn't know it's Saul. She has no idea it's Saul. He's in disguise. Uh, and so the disguised Saul asks this woman, hey, I've, I want you to bring up a certain individual for me. And the woman reminds him, don't you know that the king has put a ban on mediums and spiritists? What are you trying to do, get me killed? She knows what the, she knows what the, uh, the ban is. She knows what the penalty is for practicing this. It's death. But Saul reassures her in verse 10. Look at this one. He says, Saul vowed to her by the Lord. He made an oath. By the Lord he made this oath in the name of the Lord. He said, as, as, by the way, it's Yahweh both times. Saul, Saul vowed to her by, the, by, the, by Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God for Israel. As Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Uh, he's, he, what he does here is he takes, you know, d- didn't the Lord say earlier, didn't we just read earlier that it says in, in one of the passages, a man or woman who is a medium or spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Isn't that what the Lord said? And yet Saul here is vowing to protect her from punishment in the name of the Lord. He says, by the name of the Lord, I'll see to it that you're taken care of. He is so warped in his thinking. Saul's committing a great evil in the eyes of the Lord here, by the way, and he's doing it in the name of the Lord. He's doing it under, with God's authority. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of, of course, God's not backing him, but he's, he's saying this. Reminds me of the book of Judges. It's like Judges again. Saul would have fit in the book of Judges perfectly, by the way. A time where people were, serving the, were saying, I'm serving the Lord. At the same time, they were... Serving idols. Remember Judges 17, Micah? Remember the party at Micah's house? Remember all that? And and Micah serving the Lord and yet serving idols at the same time? All that was going on? This is the same thing here. It's total confusion. Saul is excusing the witch of Endor by offering her immunity in the name of the Lord from this punishment that the Lord has condemned. It's amazing. In other words, you could hear him say, don't worry about it, the Lord's got your back on this one. And that's not true at all. You know, it reminds me of what's going on in our country. The scriptures say, what are those who call evil good and good evil? And it, it isn't our country like that. Whatever is pleasing to the Lord, they're saying that it's, it's not right, our country says. But if it's displeasing to the Lord, they're saying, no, that's actually a good and right thing. Example, Michael Sam, the gay football player who, you know, is going to go in the NFL. He's being touted as a man of great courage. Why, it's a historic moment in our country. This gay man is going to go in the NFL, and so we've got to give him all his airplay, although he wasn't even picked very high in the draft, very low in the draft, as a matter of fact. But it just shows you how warped our thinking is. People persist in evil so long, their minds become totally warped, and they reverse their thinking about what God says, and they, that which is displeasing to the Lord, they say, no, it's a good thing. They call evil good and good evil. Saul is putting the Lord's approval on a practice that the Lord actually detests. So who do you think Saul wants to contact from the dead? He wants to contact Samuel. He's always trying to get to Samuel somehow, even though Samuel's condemned him already. If somehow he can get to Samuel, he can get advice about what to do about these Philistines. They're really always on my, they're always after me. I've got to figure out what to do about these guys. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> then the woman said, 
Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what, you, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming out, up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. I need an answer, Samuel. What do I do? Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Now, there are many who have questioned as to you know, whether this actually happened or not. Did this really happen? Is this true? What's going on here anyway? Well, all I can say is the Bible records that it is actually happening. I don't know how it happened. I don't know uh, what happened exactly, all the details. I just know that somehow it did happen. And I believe the Lord worked through this event, by the way, to bring it about. Just like he permitted the evil spirit to come upon Saul. Now, God's not the author of sin, but is it not true that he's always at work in an evil world filled with sin? He works through evil circumstances constantly. Why would I doubt the word of God? It says it, right? Uh, the, the Bible's full of supernatural events. It's just we don't wrestle, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against authorities, powers, principalities, uh, spiritual darkness in heavenly places. We wrestle against those things, right? It's a supernatural battle, and it's all too real. But let me say this. This is a very, very unique situation. Understand that. This is a very unique situation. By the way, we're not being encouraged to hold seances. It's not what the scripture is saying. If I can hear somebody come along, oh, the Bible says we should have seances. It's not what it's saying here. That is an evil that the Lord despises. We've seen that again and again. He hates all forms of witchcraft, anything involved with it. He's working through an evil situation here as he often does. Didn't the Lord Jesus get crucified with evil with wicked hands? Acts 2. And I believe the Lord is allowing this to happen for a reason. And we're going to see that in a minute. When the woman saw Samuel come up, she, was, she cried out in shock or surprise. Now, I don't know why. Maybe she didn't really expect to see anybody. Maybe she'd never really called up a dead person before. This is the first time it's ever happened. She's shocked. Uh, or for whatever reason, she, she sees this, but then she puts two and two together, and she says, wait a minute. This is Saul. I guess maybe who else would call up Samuel other than the king himself? So the woman says, look, I see a divine being coming out of the earth. By the way, that word is divine being is Elohim. In other words, she says, it looks like a god to me coming up. Now maybe that's because the aura about Samuel being a man of God, maybe this aura about him, I thought of the Stephen looking like, looked like an angel there. Maybe there was this aura about him, I don't know. Uh, maybe she had never seen the dead before and she just thought, this is all crazy, he must be a god of some kind. Samuel says, describe who this person is. And, I mean, Saul says that. By the way, Saul's very cool under this whole thing the whole time. You notice that? He's frightened with the Philistines and everything else, but he's very cool under this kind of situation. She sa- he says, who, who is this? What does he look like? Well, it's an old man wrapped with a robe. Oh, that's Samuel for sure. <laughs> Everybody knows he wore that robe, right? Remember, it was the robe that Saul had torn. Uh, his robe, he had torn a little bit, and, and Samuel said to him, just like you tore my robe, the Lord's going to tear the kingdom from you. By the way, does this mean that dead people wear clothes and they appear, appear to be aged? Is that what it's saying? 
You know, one thing we don't want to do with this verse, this passage is built some strange doctrine upon it. We don't want to do that. And by the way, let me emphasize this is a very unique situation. One time in history, moment, not to be repeated, the king of Israel goes to a, a witch at Endor and calls up Samuel the prophet. It's not going to happen again. Very unique situation. And so I think the reason Samuel appeared with his robe, by the way, and like an old man, was because people would recognize him. And I think that's how the Lord worked it out so they would know it was Samuel. Now, I know you have questions, right? Many questions, and I have many questions about this passage, and I think we're short on answers. I think we are. Uh, look, the text before you, you want to figure this out? The text before you gives you, all, gives you all the evidence, all the facts you need to know. Now you figure it out from there. That's, that's what I have to work with. That's what you have to work with, the same evidence in front of you right there. So look at the facts as they are and go from there. But it does say Samuel appeared uh, somehow. And when Saul sees him, he bows in reverence, and Samuel says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now that's evidence alone that Samuel came up from the dead. But clearly he's not happy about it. You notice that? He's very upset about it. And so Saul explains his great distress to Samuel, and Samuel answers, but it's not what Saul wanted to hear. This is not the message he wanted to hear. He says, the Lord has become your adversary. He's your enemy. What are you coming to me for? I'm on God's side. Can you imagine being called the enemy of God? By the way, Saul has two enemies now. He thought he, thought he was in trouble earlier. Number one, he's got the lesser enemy, the Philistines. And number two, he's got the greater enemy, the Lord himself. Now he's in real trouble. And now here's why I think the Lord allowed Samuel to, to get through to Saul on this. And, and look at verse 17. It says, The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through, through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not, even in the message from the grave here, David is mentioned. The guy, he doesn't want to hear about it all. Verse 18, As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now, there's no new information here presented, really. It's the same old message that Samuel's been saying while he was on earth, alive. It's a confirmation of what he has said already. All of this happened, I believe, so Saul could hear a final message of judgment from God. I think that's what this is all about. He's getting a final message of judgment from God. By the way, Saul is always only and only concerned about the immediate circumstances. You notice that in his life? I got a problem with the Philistines. What do I do? I got an issue over here. What do I do? How do I handle He's never thinking about eternal matters. He doesn't think about the eternity. He doesn't think about how his soul is with God. He's always looking for a quick fix. But Samuel's got a different message. It's not... How can you beat these Philistines? It's a message of judgment from God. He says, the Lord did exactly what he said he would do to you. He took the kingdom away from you, just like he said. And then of all the acts of disobedience that Saul was guilty of, as we've seen <clears throat> uh, so far, he points back to the one in particular, the one regarding the Amalekites. He said, do you remember when God said he wanted you to get rid of the Amalekites back in chapter 15? He said he had fierce wrath against them. Notice that word, fierce. <clears throat> His wrath against the Lord, against the Amalekites was fierce. You know, do you think that God ever has fierce wrath against people? What do you think hell is? It's fierce wrath. Yeah, that's what it says. Saul was told to exterminate the Amalekites. He didn't do it in total. <clears throat> and so he might as well have disobeyed completely. 
And this incident keeps coming back to haunt him again and again. By the way, does anybody remember in chapter 15 how the Lord described this particular act of rebellion on the part of Saul? What did he say? Rebellion is as what? He said, Samuel said to Saul, don't you know Saul when he didn't exterminate the Amalekites? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or the sin of divination. That's what it's like. Doesn't that link these two incidents together now? It's like the sin of divination. The Lord eyes rebellion and divination as equally sinful in his eyes. That's how he sees it. You say, but I've never consulted a psychic. I wouldn't do that, but have you ever rebelled against the Lord? Have you done that? Well, I I don't rebel against the Lord, but I would never do that. But if we're disobeying God's word as Saul did, we're rebelling against the Lord, right? Every time we disobey the word of God, it's rebellion against, it's an act of rebellion, and that's no, no different, no better, no worse than committing, <clears throat> being involved in divination. Rebellion is as a sin of divination, and that's what Saul did. That's how serious disobedience to the Lord's word is. Extremely serious. That's how the Lord sees it, at least. We may not see it that way. That's how God sees it. Samuel has a final word in this sermon to Saul. He says, tomorrow... You and your sons will be with me. In other words, you're going to die tomorrow. This is your last night upon the earth. Can you imagine getting this message? And not only that, not only are you going to die, but Israel is going to be defeated in battle as well. The whole nation is going to be going down. And furthermore, this is the Lord's doing. It says there, the Lord will also give over Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Who's doing this? The Lord is. It's the judgment of God upon Saul, who wanted a king like all the other nations and they, they got him, and now guess what? They're all being judged. They're all being judged. By the way, we can say the same thing of Samuel here, as was said of Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. He being dead, or he, though he is dead, he speaks, right? He still speaks. <laughs> Samuel was dead, but he's still speaking. And he's preaching his sermon from the grave. And by the way, it's the same sermon he preached on earth to Saul, a message of judgment. God's judgment upon you, Saul. There's no, the message hasn't changed at all. Look, I'm going to go, Saul says, I'm going to go down and try to dig up Samuel from the, from the grave. He does it. Guess what? Same message. Same message. God's, God's word does not change. And then finally, the last supper of Saul. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> and Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground. He was very afraid. Still afraid. He wasn't afraid during the time he was talking to the medium. He's very reassuring during that time, but he's now afraid again. He was very afraid because of what? Because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all that day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is a very sad ending, isn't it? This is his last meal. This is a meal fit for a king, isn't it? A medium makes a meal fit for a king. Look at all the trouble she went to and what she did. But it's anything but enjoyable. Saul had been fasting that day, probably because he had no appetite, because the Philistines were coming after him, and 
And so he decides to go through this inquiry process. But the medium encourages him to eat, and his servants encourage him to eat. And look at verse 23. It says, he listened to them. It's a key word in Saul's life, listening, or not listening, by the way. This is a very telling statement. Saul had a real serious problem listening to the Lord, didn't he? But he seems to have no problem listening to a witch. And he does what she says and says, I think I'll eat that final meal, and he does. Now, what bearing does all this have on us? We see this story. By the way, this story is not so much about the witch of Endor as it is about Saul. The the troubled, strange personality who's sinning willfully against God. What does all this have to do with us? Well, I think there's a few things we can consider as as we look at this chapter tonight. Number one, consider, first of all, the hopelessness of a life lived in rebellion to God. The hopelessness of a life lived in rebellion to God. If you, as you think through this chapter, this whole chapter has the feel of hopelessness about it, doesn't it? It's a chapter of despair. It's sad. Saul's afraid at the beginning of the chapter, and he's afraid at the end of the chapter. The Lord has departed from Saul. The Lord will not answer Saul. Saul has to resort to a witch or does resort to a witch to try to get an answer. Judgment is pronounced against Saul. The enemy of the defeat of Israel is predicted. There's this air of hopelessness about the whole chapter here. And I thought of Ephesians 2 when I, when I thought about these things. And it says there, he talks to the people who were, he says, Paul says, at one time, you people now knowing Christ were without hope and without God in the world. There was a time when you didn't have God, and there was a time as a result you didn't have hope because only in the Lord is there hope. Those who reject, or who reject the Lord are one day going to be rejected by the Lord, by the way. They are living in hopelessness. Think about that. When we, we see people who don't, who don't know Christ, think about the fact they have no hope at all. Saul had a great opportunity from the Lord, but he threw it all away. Right from the beginning, the Lord's, you remember as we go back and we think about the donkeys in chapter 9, how the Lord worked providentially to bring, to use the lost donkeys to bring Saul to the kingship, to Samuel. We think about the Lord working sovereignly in his life. We think about the fact that the Lord anointed him to be king. We think about the fact that the Lord empowered him by his spirit. Even at times, his spirit came upon Saul. It reminds me of Hebrews again, tasted of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come. He was so close to this thing. I had a friend tell me one time I talked to at Target about the gospel. He says, Mark, you know how close I am to this. I thought, no, you're a million miles away, if that's your answer. He had the guidance of Samuel the prophet. The guidance of Samuel the prophet. Of all things, he had the greatest man of God in Israel at the time to guide him. He had it all, didn't he? He had all the advantages. And yet he turned his back on all of it. He rejected God. Now, you can have all the spiritual advantages available in life that you can possibly get. You can grow up in a Christian home and have that. That's a great thing to grow up in a Christian home. I was very fortunate to grow up in a Christian home, by the way. You can hear the gospel preached for years in your life. You can hear it preached. You can be in the middle of a church that preaches sound doctrine. You can come to the services here on Sunday morning and hear Mike preach the gospel and, and, and be without God and turn around and reject him. You can do that, and you're going to be in hopelessness. It's a hopeless life to live without God. Saul teaches us this lesson that you can have all the advantages and yet turn your back on all of it, like an apostate would in the New Testament. People that profess Christ but don't really possess this Holy Spirit and don't really know Christ. And they don't live like it either. But they pretend to be Christians. Be careful that you don't send away your day of grace. 
Turn from your rebellion if you're rebelling against Christ right now, even though you appear to be a Christian. All of us look like Christians in here, right? We look that way. We're here at church. Maybe we all are. I'm not saying we're not. I think, to my knowledge, everybody here is, but I don't know. Only God knows everybody's hearts. But if you're in that situation, turn from your rebellion against God and turn to Him, trusting in Him and in Christ alone. Consider that. Secondly, consider that sin will hinder our prayers. Sin, a sin in your life will hinder your prayers. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, it says. You don't think the Lord can hear your prayers? Of course he can. But he'll, he'll make it so. He'll hide his face from you. If you're sinning against him deliberately, he will not hear, it says. So like in First Peter 3, uh, you know, get your, you know, it says that your prayers be not hindered. With, if you have your proper relationship with your wife, you don't want your prayers hindered. We can't just continue to live in disobedience to the Lord, can we? You think we're going to keep doing that and God's going to hear our prayers? I don't think it works that way. Communion with God means we confess our sins. It means that we, are, we see our sins offensive to our Heavenly Father and we get it right with Him. We get it right and forsake it and repent. It means walking in the light. So consider that sin will hinder your prayers as it did Saul. And then thirdly and finally, consider that your sin will hurt others, will hurt other people. Saul's selfishness, his jealousy, drove David right out of Israel, drove him right out. And I, I don't think that he should have left, but it did, and, and it, he, he contributed to that. And he took David away from the special covenant relationship of, he had with, that God had with Israel for 16 months, it says, out of the land of Israel. But that's not the only person he hurt in his, in his lifetime as king. He hurt the entire nation of Israel, Saul did, in many ways. But here he puts them in, the entire nation in, in jeopardy because of his disobedience. They're going to be defeated in battle by the Philistines because of Saul's disobedience. He was too busy running around trying to kill David to be running the nation. You know, we have to think beforehand, before we sin, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we have to think beforehand, what will my sin do to others? If I sin... What will, what will that do to other people? How will that hurt them? We need to think that periodically. It's a good practice to think about how if we carry out our sin, what's going to happen? First of all, it's going to hurt your relationship with God. Secondly, it's going to hurt other people. It could very well hurt other people. And thirdly, it's going to hurt your, your own self in many ways. Nothing good ever comes out of sin and disobedience. So tonight, let this life of Saul, as we've looked at it all these weeks now, let the life of Saul be a warning to us. Let it be like a, a red flag warning us. The Lord is not one to be trifled with, is he? Not one to be trifled with. We truly belong to God. It will be reflected in how we live. We say this again and again from the pulpit, right? From the Sunday school classroom, from, in our own discussions. We truly belong to the Lord. It will be reflected in how we live. Our lives will be marked by, will, must be marked by obedience if we know the Lord. These are some of the things tonight we can learn from the life of King Saul. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word once again. And uh, we know it teaches us in many ways. It teaches us to, um, it's an education in righteousness. It teaches, it corrects us, it rebukes us in many ways. Tonight, this passage rebukes us. We pray that we'll learn from this, not just leave it in the life of Saul, not just think it happened back then, but realize it could happen right now to us. We just pray we'd be among those who would be marked by an obedient lifestyle, trusting you, realizing all the blessings you've given to us and taking advantage of them for good, uh, 
being thankful for what you've given to us, not turning our back on those things. And we just pray that tonight, we would, as we go forth from here, we'd be an example of what it truly means to be a believer. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.